it's so good I get to go first today. <laughs> I, I told Paul I might leave in five minutes if he's lucky. <laughs> um, I just want to read some words of scripture to you. Um, it's not related really to the seminar, but we're looking at it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. And I wonder, do you ever read the Bible just to enjoy the words? And this morning when I was driving up, I was listening to a CD and the speaker read this psalm and I, the words just blew me away. And I just want you to fall in love with scripture. And that's what this seminar is really all about. Listen to Psalm 100 and just listen and enjoy the words that God has left us and communicated to us. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Even just reading the words of scripture can really thrill our hearts, can't it? Just to enjoy the words. And in this seminar, what we're trying to do is to encourage you to really become confident in reading and studying the Bible for yourself, and to fall in love again with the word of God. And as we start, if you've been here before, the fact that there's so many new people here, I said to Paul, if the old ones are coming back, the place should be full. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure that doesn't bode well for what we've done the last two days. But anyway, at its most basic level, Bible study is about three simple steps that will help you to get into and engage with the Word of God. And if you were here before, you'll have heard this before. So you can actually go to sleep or else see if you've remembered what we said over the last couple of days. But the first step is observation, where you're going to read the passage carefully and find out as much information from the text as you can. As Paul said on the first morning, God has given us his word. The words matter. He has breathed out his word. It is the word of God. And so paying attention to the detail of the words really matters. We need to observe it accurately and carefully. Then as we observe the words of the text, we want to understand what truth is being conveyed by that text. And we need to do that looking back at what did the writers intend when they wrote it in its original context. And actually this morning we're going to look a wee bit at context. And then as we do that, then what truth can I take from this that will apply to my life today? Because ultimately our third step has got to be application. We are studying the Bible not to become intellectually aware, but to become transformed into the image of Christ. The whole purpose of it is that our lives would be shaped and changed by the Word of God. So the goal is more than intellectual understanding. It's about transformed lives. So on the first morning, the skill we looked at is looking at people, places and events. Three things that are really obvious in a passage that help us then to get into it and start finding things that are less obvious. Yesterday we looked at asking some questions and we looked at who, what, when, where, why and how type questions 
open-ended questions that require an answer and make us more intentional as we interrogate the text. And then we looked at two ways we can make a list from the text. One, if a word is repeated in it, then we can highlight that and make a list of everything we learn about that particular word or phrase. Or if there's a body of information in the text, then we can list that in the text and start to take that information out to look at it. And we did that yesterday with the two on the way to Emmaus. But as we come to the passage today, we're going to look at a couple of things that are going to not just help with our observation, but they're going to help us as we interpret the truth in the text. The first one is the context. That is paying attention to the question, where are we? And that's probably one of the most important questions you can ask as you start to read a passage. Where are we? Where are we in the story? Where are we in this book that I'm reading, this, this book of the Bible? But even a bigger question, where are we in the whole story of the Bible? And so it's answering that where are we question is really important for helping us to set the passage in context. I'm going to look at the smaller context of where are we and then Paul will be looking at the same passage but setting it in a much bigger context as he compares it and sets it into the context of the Bible. Another thing we look at is repeated words and phrases, something we did a bit yesterday but there is a repeated phrase that's very, very helpful for us for opening up this passage that we're going to look at. And the third skill we're going to look at is cross-referencing. And we're going to do all this in 20 minutes, aren't we? Amazing. Okay. So the Bible is its best own interpreter. And so as we look at other scriptures that help to look at our feed into what we're studying, it can open up our understanding. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, and it's on your handout. And in order to get the immediate context of Matthew chapter 4, where would we need to go? That's a question and you're allowed to answer. <laughs> Thank you, we need to go to Matthew chapter 3, okay? So in order to facilitate that and just to save time, I'm going to tell you what happened in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is starting out on his public ministry. He has come to John and he has just been baptised by John. As he was being baptised by John and as he's been brought up out of the water, the heavens open and there's a voice from heaven. And the voice of God speaks about him, declaring his identity. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But something else happens, it says the Spirit of God descended on him, and in fact in John's Gospel it tells us that it remained on him. Jesus is endued with power and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's very important as we start into chapter 4 verse 1 that we know that, that those events have literally just happened, because the first word is them. After all of that happened, then, and so we're going to read verse 1 to verse 7. I'm just going to do the first 7. We're just going to look at the first two temptations very quickly, and then Paul will bring the whole thing together. And let's read it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, 
It is written. And I want you to underline that, it is written, because that's a repeated phrase right down these 11 verses. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, okay, so underline that, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then there's another temptation before the passage ends, but I'm just going to stop there for now. This is a very familiar passage to all of us, but I want us to first of all look at the immediate context for the first temptation. If you were looking at verse 1 to 3, what is the immediate context before Satan comes to Jesus with the first temptation? What do you learn in the first verse or two of this passage? Okay, could you say? Okay, he has already spent 40 days without food. How has he ended up there? He has been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what is the purpose for him being led into the wilderness? To be tempted by the devil. It's kind of an interesting thought that, isn't it? Jesus is inaugurated for his ministry. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. We're good to go. Let's get the flyers out. Let's get the tent up. Let's have a campaign. And he disappears. But he's been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days. And he fasts day and night for those 40 days. So what stage has he reached when Satan comes to tempt him? It tells us just three simple words. He was hungry. It's kind of an interesting thought that the Son of God is sitting in a wilderness and it says about him, he was hungry. I just never lose sight of just stopping and thinking about what you're reading and meditate on the words that you're um, able to see. And so here he is and he is hungry. And what does Satan say to him? when he comes to him what's his first word if so if is what sort of a word what's a doubting word if you are the son of god make these stones bread what had just happened in chapter three what had god what had god's voice confirmed to jesus at that point that he was his son and so the very first challenge, A, is to his identity, but then to use his identity in a way that will satisfy his physical needs. Because Jesus is hungry and he wants food, he, he needs food. And so Satan comes and challenges him. And so what Satan is doing here is he's targeting him where he's weak. He's challenging his identity and he's wanting him to use that identity with purposes other than the purposes that God has set for him. How does Jesus respond to the temptation? It is written. It is written. He takes the words of the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't use his own words, but immediately takes the words of scripture 
and uses them with authority in order to respond back to Satan. Now, what words does he say whenever he's answering him back? Hello. <laughs> okay. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we can use a cross-reference in order to go back into the Old Testament and find out what was the context of those words being used in the Old Testament and how can they then shed light on us as we come to the New Testament. And so there's a spider on the microphone. <laughs> and so as we look in Deuteronomy, we need to go back to Deuteronomy chapter eight and verse two and three. And the book of Deuteronomy is at the end of the forty years in the wilderness. Moses is restating the law to the children of Israel as they prepare to finally enter the promised land. And verse two and three say this in Deuteronomy eight You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So I want you to stop and think about this. Don't rush on. Stop and think. How long have the children of Israel been in the wilderness? And who led them there, according to Deuteronomy 8? 40 years. And who led them there? God led them there. Why did he lead them there? What was he doing? It tells us in Deuteronomy 8, he was humbling them, he was testing them, he wanted to see what was in their hearts, whether they would obey his commands. And so what did he do in order to test them? It tells us again in Deuteronomy 8, he, he let them go hungry. I think that's a staggering thought. Is that the God we know? The God who will take us into wilderness times and in fact let us go hungry in order that he might test what's in our hearts. And so how did he feed them every day? With manna. And how did they, could they just go out and get it when they want it and take as much as they like? Or what did they have to do in order to be fed by God? Okay, they had to go every day they had to obey his voice. In order to be survive the wilderness, in order to be fed by God, they had to walk in obedience to his command. Because if they didn't, the manna just went into worms, it, it rotted, it decayed. And so God was training them to obedience. And it's so fascinating to me the parallels we see in this passage with Jesus because what do we see in Matthew 4 as Jesus responds to G Satan's temptation how long has Jesus been in the wilderness 40 days what's happened to him he has now been hungry and now there is this test to him this temptation to him remember Jesus was God but he was man and what was his heart going to be like 
was he going to be different from the children of Israel? Was he going to have a heart to obey God? And so he's tested. And so he's tested with food. Just the same way as the children of Israel before him have been tested in the wilderness. But Jesus speaks and says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think it's a staggering thing. There's another verse in Hebrews 5 here. They said, though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? When you put it into context. And so as we read the next temptation in verses 5 to 7, what now does Satan do as he takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city and encourages him to jump? How does Satan now start to respond back to Jesus? What words did you underline? It is written. Hmm. He doesn't fight clean, sure he doesn't. Because what is Satan actually doing now? Jesus has answered the scripture, so what's Satan now doing as he tempts Jesus? He's using scripture back to him. He said, okay, if we're going to talk scripture, I'll give you scripture. And so Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, giving him a scriptural basis for telling him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. He uses the word, it is written. What do we need to learn here about how scripture should be used? Because just because the Bible is being quoted, does not mean that truth is being told. And that's a really important thing. We need to know that. That the scriptures can be taken and can be distorted and can be used to serve a purpose other than the purpose of God. And again, we need to get another cross-reference to help us with that. And the cross-reference is in Ephesians 6:17. Whenever Paul is talking about the armour, he talks about the word of God is the sword, but whose sword is it? The sword of the Spirit. And so here we have Jesus, who has been filled with the Holy Spirit, who is able to, with authority, under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit, to wield the sword of Scripture and refute Satan's temptations. But here we have Satan taking that same word in his own hands, but not under the influence or the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it's simply a sword that if Jesus had listened to him, would have inflicted damage on him. The other day, um, my grandson was in our garden and he got hold of the hose. And my husband had gone over just to switch on the tap. And there's like a trigger mechanism on the hose and he's only just coming to and he discovered how to use it. <laughs> and every time my husband went to get him, he <laughs> You know, a hose in the wrong hands is very dangerous. How much more dangerous is the sword of the word when it's not in the hands of the spirit. And we need to be very careful about what we do. So how is effective is the word of God in dealing with the temptation of Satan? Well, we just need to go down to verse 11 to find out. It says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so I'm just going to finish there, but as we close, 
I want you to see, number one, we've done nothing but observe the words of Scripture. We've looked at a phrase that was repeated, it is written, and we noticed that Jesus used it, but Satan used it. So what was the difference? And we've looked at the cross-reference for the words that Jesus spoke and just reflected on their context. We've seen parallels in the context that has helped us to understand more fully why Jesus uses those scriptures in that context so powerfully in order to refute the temptation of Satan. And I hope that as we close that you will really understand that the Bible needs to be correctly handled. It needs to be merged and fused with the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that it is a sword of the Spirit. And only then, as it breathes the very Word of God into our lives and brings life, never lose your love of the words that God has given us. Read them, think about them, and then live them as you do. So I just hand over to you. Thanks, Valerie. Um, before I say anything else, if you want to flip over to the other side of your page, your handout, that's where you'll find the, the section that I'm going to lead you through. And there are a couple of tables there that we're going to fill in. But just turn to someone beside you, or maybe first before we do that, just take a moment again to read over the passage. So if you flip back again to, to Valerie's side of the page, you've got the text there in front of you. Read over that again. What questions do you still have about that passage? We've already had a look at it, but what other questions might you have? So just take a moment personally to do that. Now, it may be that you have 10 questions. You might have no questions. It's a Thursday morning and a busy week. You might be thinking the sun's coming out. You need to be outside. Turn to somebody beside you. Okay, and just share with them what questions you have or listen to their questions. Hopefully between the two of you, you'll have something. So have a quick chat for a couple of minutes and then we'll see what comes back. Uh, from your conversation, so. Okay, what questions? Just fire them out, I'm not promising you an answer, okay, but I do believe there's no such thing as a stupid question. There are stupid answers, and I am quite capable of giving those, but there's no such thing as a stupid question. So what questions? Okay, why did Jesus go with Satan? So what was Satan up to in this passage? What have we already said? He's tempting or testing, and those words are related. And remember back in Deuteronomy, it's, it's a test to see what is in the heart. So does Satan know who Jesus is before this? How does he know that before this? Well, he's heard perhaps what God has said, but Satan is not omniscient. Remember, he doesn't know everything. Okay, so there's a question here for Satan. Is Satan trying to make Jesus stumble? Of course, he may well be. But is he also trying to be sure who this really is? Is he a bit concerned here? Who is this character who has come on the scene? Um, but what is Jesus doing here? He's allowing himself to, to go with Satan. He seems to go to this high mountain, to the pinnacle of the, the, the temple and so on. Presumably, or we know that the Lord didn't have to do that. So who's getting tested? Well, maybe there's a lesson here for Satan too, isn't there? I mean, I think by the end of this passage, Satan knows that the writing is on the wall. We'll come back to that in a minute. So, yeah. Anything else? It just reminds me of the story of Job. Okay. Where um, Satan asked God for permission to tempt Job. Yes. And yeah. um, so that obviously puts the context of okay. how powerful God is. Yes. God is. So why did this happen? Why? Right. 
why, um, you know, I mean, is it, um, like you said about the 40, 40, 40 years, yes. is, it, is it a sort of like a picture of that, or okay. why is this, why is this Okay, so a couple of things I run. First, you said it, just for the benefit of the recording, it reminds you of Job. So in the story of Job, we know that Satan was only allowed to test or tempt Job as far as God allowed him to, and there was a limit set on that. So God is in control of temptations, including this one, and clearly Christ is the one who is in control here, not Satan. So Christ goes with him, but it's not Satan who's in control. But also then, why, why did he allow that to happen? And it's always a good question to ask of any passage. Why, what is a, a strange passage like this doing in a good Bible like this? Okay, you know, it's that kind of question. Why, why does it? Why is it here? Why did? How does it fit in? If this wasn't here, what would we lose? And why is it here in this place in, in Matthew? And you made the point about the forty days and the forty years that Valerie had drawn out earlier. So how does that? How does that fit? And we'll come back to that. That's great. Anything else? Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. So Jesus is being prepared for his ministry because he's experiencing temptation. And Hebrews makes that point. I know, Valerie, it was maybe yesterday, was it, that you referred to Hebrews? Or was it even this morning? I'm losing track of days. But in Hebrews, we're told that, that he's a high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. So there's something here that is this learning obedience as, as Valerie mentioned earlier as well from Hebrews that's preparing him to be the high priest and I also think too that um, we don't recognize Satan as a public Christian right. I think temptations come yeah. so sometimes becoming a Christian is, makes life harder okay? because we, we experience greater temptations we recognize that Satan's behind some of the things that we used to think were just our own wee ideas or just how everybody thinks and suddenly you see, actually, this is not as simple as just what I think or what the world thinks. Actually, Satan is at work through this. And there are lies which are very powerful lies, aren't they? They're very attractive lies as well. So this example helps us to see what those might be. Okay, any other quick questions? I know there were a few other. Just I mean, Okay. What did he look like? And did anybody else see him up there? And was anybody else trying to get the, you know, those films where they try to get the, the big bouncy thing to catch the person before they fall? It's like, was there a bit of a commotion? We don't know. Did other people say we don't know what time of day? We don't even know. I mean, I know, I think you were also talking about the high mountain and where is a mountain that you could actually see all the kingdoms of the world. Clearly that mountain doesn't exist on earth because of the shape of the earth. It doesn't exist. So was this a vision as opposed to, uh, you know, a literal thing? But does it matter to those questions? Now, I mean, they're good questions as you try to sort of envisage it and imagine it. But I always sort of wondered why. Yeah. I can see why worshiping Satan is it. Yes. But changing loaves into bread. Okay. What's the problem? Jumping off a. Yeah. Yeah. Jumping off from the temple, changing loaves into bread. What's the root problem that's there? Okay, worshiping Satan clearly is a problem. And in that sense, do you have a. A kind of escalation here of the, the temptation starting from the mundane, the everyday, I mean the changing the stones into bread, he could have done that and nobody else would have seen. Jumping off the temple, everyone would have seen and then next one it's worship Satan, isn't it? It's it's you know, ranking it up. So temptations like that, isn't it? It it starts with very small things that become bigger things and lead on to 
a really big, big problem. So lots of questions that we might ask. Now what I want to try and do uh, with this passage is to help us think. We, we've thought about a couple of problems in the last couple of days. So two days ago on Tuesday, I was particularly thinking about how do we recognize and accept Scripture as uniquely the Word of God amongst all of the other voices, including preachers like me, teachers who are teaching, and we've heard that this morning. I could be teaching and quoting Scripture, but my job ought to be as a teacher of God's Word to help you to see that this is the authority of God's Word. Okay, And therefore, if I'm teaching the Word of God, I need to be open to the challenge coming back from you that says, I think you've missed this. I think you've missed that because we together are the people of God to whom God has spoken. Okay, so it's not the authority here is not the expert, it's not the theologian or the preacher or the teacher or the pastor or the minister. That person is a servant of the word who is trying to help God's people to be faithful to his word. So together we want it to be God's word that is speaking. And we talked about why that is what Jesus did and how he taught and how he viewed scripture as uniquely the word of God. Then yesterday we talked, or at least I said that the problem was this idea of how do we actually understand scripture? How do we engage with it? And we're trying to help model that in what we're doing in these seminars. Today the problem's slightly different. I don't know how well you can see the picture there, but it's a wee girl. I don't know what beach it is. We'll say it's Port Port Stewart Strand there. She's got her bike and her dog, and she's clearly in her swimming gear, and the sign says, no dogs, no bicycles, no swimming. Okay? This is the reality of being faced with the question, what do I do at this point? Do I just ignore the sign and go on past? Or do I take this sign seriously? What is God's word actually saying to us about how we live? So yesterday I ended by saying that in the passage that we looked at yesterday, Jesus wants us or God wants us to make his word internal to who we are. Okay, The word of God is, is food that we feed on. When you eat, what happens? Food gets turned into you, doesn't it? Your body is made up of food that you have eaten over the years. That's how it works, right? And, and so the word of God as food needs to become internal to us. It shapes us. We, it's the building block of who we are becoming. That's what happens when we hear and trust and obey the word of God. So imagine the scene, we could, we could, we've already done that in the questions that we were asking. What did this look like? What did it feel like? What's the, the wilderness like, the desert place where Jesus was? And here he is alone and fasting and hungry and must be desperately hungry after 40 days. And Satan comes along with what seems like an innocent little thing. You're hungry. Loaf of bread. Stones. Just turn them into a loaf of bread. Now the thing is that Jesus is going to eat lots of times after this, isn't he? If you actually think about the ministry of Jesus, eating is a big part of it, isn't it? He's, he's eating all the time. In fact, one of the accusations that was made against, against him was you're eating too much. You're always feasting. Isn't that right? I mean, you, you may be familiar with that passage, but the Pharisees and others come to him and say, you're always having banquets and feasts and whatever. And Jesus says, well, as long as the bridegroom is with you, that's what you do. You feast. The time for fasting will come. So Jesus is known as a big eater. Right? He likes his food. He enjoys the gift of food that has come from God. So, so this beginning to his ministry stands in contrast to that. Partly because he's alone, because usually when Jesus is eating, he's with others. And in fact, 
the one miracle that he performs that's included in all four Gospels is when he feeds others by transforming five loaves and two fish into enough to feed more than 5,000. So clearly the problem isn't with the idea of, of a miracle of changing something into something else or a miracle of multiplication. What is the root issue? Why would it be wrong for him to do this at this point? What, what do you think about that? Why would it be wrong at this point for Jesus to turn the stone into bread? Sorry? He'd be giving in to Satan. So is it wrong because it's Satan who said to do it? Yes, but it's not so much wrong because it's Satan, but because it's not God who has said it. Right? In other words, Jesus, remember he says in John's Gospel repeatedly, I always do the things that my Father tells me to do. I always say the words that my Father has given me, he says. His Father has not told him to do this. It's Satan who has told him. The issue is not the act itself. The timing is wrong. The situation is wrong. Because Jesus is walking in step-by-step obedience to his Father in the power of the Spirit. That's what faithful living is meant to be like. It's moment by moment, day by day, responding to the word of God, responding to what God is saying to us. Maybe the other issue, and people often point this out, is that if Jesus did this, whose needs is he meeting? Entirely his own. Is that what Jesus is like? No. And repeatedly, as Jesus teaches his disciples, even in the feeding of the 5,000, when do the disciples get to eat in that miracle? The end, right? There are 12 baskets left over, and the implication is that there's enough for them, but it's after they've given out to others. You see that? Selflessness. Giving of self. Prioritizing the needs of others over our own needs. That's going to mark Jesus' ministry, and it's going to lead him eventually to the greatest demonstration of that, which is the cross, right? So there's something here about the character of Jesus' ministry and then how we are to live as Christians and how we are to serve. So two things that I want to lead us into. One is is to think a little bit more about how Jesus' example inspires us in facing temptation. So uh, we're going to think about this theme of temptation through Scripture. And as Valerie said, I want to try and set this passage in the context of the whole Bible. Okay, so we're, we're zooming out from this passage to see the whole of the Bible. And I'm going to do that in two ways, by thinking about the theme of temptation, and then by thinking about the, the story of Scripture. So yesterday I tried to outline that story in five movements, okay? And where is this in the story? Well, who is this? This is Jesus, who I put right at the center of that story. So I want us to see how this fits in to the whole story. Hopefully that will become clear. There are two tables on your sheet that you'll need to fill in as we go along. Now, Satan uses Psalm 91. What's the problem with Satan's use of scripture here? Okay, it's distorted. Why is it distorted? Okay, it's not spirit-led, right? And that's what Valerie was saying earlier, and that's incredibly important. Again, the use of scripture has to be used with the wisdom that the, the spirit brings. But if you were then stepping back and saying, well, where is this passage from? It's from Psalm 91, verse 11 to 12. What would you want to know? What did Valerie say earlier that matters? Context. So you want to read the whole of Psalm 91. What is Psalm 91 about? And we don't have time to do that now, but you would do that if you're looking at this at home. 
and I'll tell you what it's about in a, in a second. But Psalm 91 is one psalm out of how many psalms? 150. Okay? And the psalms are one part of the Old Testament. Okay? So the problem with Satan's use of Psalm 91, as well as this issue of not being led by the Spirit, is that he turns the verse on its head. He actually makes it mean the opposite of what it means in context. Because what Satan does is he turns it into the principle that God is obliged to do what you want God to do for you. For your good, your safety, your protection. Do you see that? Jump off there, God will have to come along and pick up the pieces. Or pick you up before you get <laughs> smashed into pieces. Now is that how faith works? Is it? God, I'm going to do what I want to do and you know, I'll trust that you'll pick me up. I'm going to speed down the road. Lord, preserve me from an accident. That's not how faith works, is it? And sometimes how we talk as if faith works. You know, when we pray, Lord, we've made all these plans, would you come along and bless them? Instead of saying, Lord, what would you actually have us do before we make the plans? Do you, do you see what I mean? So we, we actually subtly do this all the time. When you read Psalm 91, the whole psalm, you'll find that it is a wonderful psalm promising protection, but it's promising protection to those who have made God their dwelling place. He who lives in the shelter of the Almighty, and so on. You've got to be trusting in God, and trust means listening and obeying, doesn't it? So it's as you do what God wants you to do, God will provide what you need to do it. That's a biblical principle. Not do what you want. Or do what Satan says and expect God to pick up the pieces. Now the wonderful thing is God often does pick up the pieces. Right? He blesses us despite ourselves. He blesses what we do despite what we do. But our responsibility is to come in faith. Now the other thing is that it's out of the context of the whole Old Testament. And one of the best places to see the danger of doing this is Proverbs even more than Psalms. So some of the Proverbs seem to be saying, you know, God always prospers people who trust in him. Right? And you could read that, it, you know, it promises prosperity for those who trust in God. And you could read that and say, well, therefore, let's build a whole message of prosperity. Everybody who trusts in God is going to be prosperous. Any problems with that? Doesn't match with our experience, does it? It's not how life works. But it is how life works sometimes, and that's why it's a proverb in the Bible, because there is a wisdom in that, but it's not the whole of the story. Do you see what I mean? So in other words, you could say that most of the time, people who trust in God have a better life in different ways. They have the experience of peace, they have certainly the hope of heaven, which is better, and so on. But at the same time, there's the other side of the story, the story of Job, a man who was faithful and trusted in God and yet suffered profoundly. So we've got to look at the whole of Scripture, the whole of its wisdom. It's not that it contradicts. That's not how Proverbs work. And if we were talking about Proverbs, we'd have to think, how do they work, right? But we've got to read the whole of Scripture to understand the whole picture. So Psalm 91 is about promises of God's protection, but some of the other Psalms are very different, aren't they? Crying out in pain and loss, wondering where God is clutching with the fingertips to try and just hold on another day and that's part of the story of a life of faith as well isn't it and we need both of those the word of god is as valerie said is the sword of the spirit when we're faced with satan's lies 
Okay, this is a, it is our resource. It's our resource to recognize what is actually true here. But if we're going to understand that, we need to understand the whole of Scripture in its context. So what is the wider context? Well, let's look at two other verses that speak about temptation. One from the beginning of the Bible. Where did temptation begin? In the story of the Bible for human beings, Genesis 3. So what does it say in Genesis 3, verse 6? It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now what do you notice about that temptation? How many temptations are there here? Three. You see that? Three temptations. Now, are we on to something here? How many temptations did Jesus face? Three. Okay, do you see a pattern? Right? Let's skip forward to a later part of the Bible, 1 John 2, verse 16. Here is John writing to Christians. He says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. How many sources of temptation are there? Three. So there's a pattern here, isn't there? And I'm not, I mean, you could say, well, I'm just ripping these out of context. You'd have to look at them in their context. But the point is that the story of temptation in the Bible begins with a threefold temptation. And John, writing to Christians, says there are three sources of temptation. And Jesus, in the middle of the story, experiences three sources of temptation. Are they related to each other? I think they are. You might even be already begin to see that. What clues here or what words here seem to relate to Matthew 4? What words? Eyes. Jesus is, is shown the kingdoms of the world, isn't he? And the eyes are here. You've got the desires of the eyes, the delight to the eyes. Yep. Anything else? What's Jesus' first temptation? About food. The, the tree is good for food. Okay. The desires of the, the flesh. Yeah. What else? Well, maybe the third one we're expecting to see a pattern as well, aren't we? Okay, so it's about a position of who is worshipped, isn't there as well? Who's the? Is it God who's worshipped, or is it Satan, or is it ourselves? That's desire to make one wise. It's clear in Genesis three that actually what's going on is they think they can be like God, isn't it? That's what Satan says to them: you, you can be like gods. Pride and possessions. How does that relate? Well, let's try and fill that into to the table that we have here. The root problem I'm going to suggest to you, and you might disagree slightly, and that's fine, because I'm not the definitive interpreter of Scripture, okay? I'll say that up front. But I think there is a root problem of selfishness that we face day in and day out. And that is the starting point. And greed, this question of what we want for ourselves, it relates to selfishness, it builds on it. It's about how we relate to stuff in the world. And then there is this question of pride which is how we relate to God. And in 1 John 2.16, we've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Okay, The version, now you'll see here different versions. The, the version on the last screen talked about pride in possession. This translation is saying the pride of life. 
when you see a difference between two translations, you might want to say, what, what's that about? Which one is right? Which one is more accurate? And I'm going to suggest that the Pride of Life might be a better translation in this place, because I think it's broader than just the stuff that we own. But anyway, there are three temptations that are there. Adam and Eve, good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make them like God, to make them wise, it says, but what they're really after is to be wiser than God. Yeah? Jesus' temptation, turn the stones to bread, receive material gain, all the stuff that you can have in the world, and then jump and God will rescue you, which is the middle. I've reversed the order there, but jumping from the temple, that's about pride. God exists for my benefit rather than I exist to serve God. Do you see that? And Jesus' response, selfishness. By the way, if you can't see the words here and you want to get those in the website on the bottom of that page, you'll find the completed version, okay? So I know it's hard to see from back there. And then greed, serve God, not material things, Jesus says. And pride, trust God, don't test him. Jesus is being tested here. Satan, you might even say, is being tested, but the one person who should not be tested is God. God should be trusted and served. And then Matthew 6, interestingly, when Jesus talks about, and, and Scott referred to it this morning, the three expressions of righteousness, acts of righteousness, what are they? Fasting, which is to do with food, isn't it? Giving, which is to do with the greed issue, isn't it? And praying, which is to do with this faith issue, the pride issue. Now, do you see how, I, I hope you can see, I mean, there's a pattern there which we notice, and this is about trying to build up a biblical story. Some people would say a biblical theology, but let's just say a biblical picture of what temptation looks like. And at the middle of it is Jesus. Now, let me ask another question which will lead us into the, the second point about Jesus' place in the story. What happened when Adam and Eve faced these three temptations? What did they do? They gave in. They sinned. What happens when you face these temptations? We sin. Okay, we're comfortable to admit that, that we have failed on these three points. Not all the time, but maybe most of the time even, but we certainly have failed on these three temptations. What happened when Jesus faced them? Did he fail? No. Okay. And this is about Jesus' place in the big story of Scripture. Right? And, and this is about context again. We're going to try and think about the, the pattern of Matthew's Gospel. What came just before We've asked this already, but what comes just before this passage in Matthew 4? What happens in Matthew 3? So again, open your Bible and look at the headings if that helps you to do that. But what happens in Matthew 3? Jesus is baptized. Jesus goes through the water. We're not going to have a debate about what baptism looked like for, for Jesus or what it should look like in our churches. It's pretty clear when John baptized, at least, that it was going under the water of the Jordan. But anyway, there's water that Jesus passes through. And then he spends 40 days where? In the wilderness. And then he is tested or tempted. And he quotes from which part of scripture? Deuteronomy. Right? Do you see a pattern there at all? What happens in Matthew 2? Have a look at the headings in your Bible if you like. Well, 
That's a passage we tend to read around Christmas time, isn't it? What happens? Herod tries to kill all the babies. And where does Jesus get taken to? Egypt. And Matthew tells us that, so it's fulfilled out of Egypt, I will bring my son. And people look at that and say, here's Matthew abusing the Old Testament because he's taking it out of context. That's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. So Matthew, you know, the, the quotation is misused, but it's not misused. Why? Because what pattern do you have? Jesus is brought out of Egypt under the threat of the, the killing of all the children. Then he's brought out of Egypt. And then he goes through the water. And then he spends 40 days in the desert. And then what does Jesus do after Matthew 4? What comes in Matthew 5? The teaching, and Scott made this point this morning, which is brilliant for me, because he says here is Jesus like a new Moses, right? You see? Do you see a pattern? So what you have in the story of Israel is they are brought out of Egypt. Jesus is brought out of Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea. Jesus passes through the water of the River Jordan. Forty years in the wilderness, forty days in the wilderness. The forty is significant. Five books of the law and five blocks of teaching in Matthew. If we had time to look right through Matthew, you'll see that five times in Matthew it says when Jesus had finished speaking. And those references are all on the, the web page, so don't worry if you can't see them. In fact, even better, just read Matthew and look for them. Okay, <laughs> that's even better. Get into Scripture. The point is there's a pattern that Jesus is fulfilling the pattern of Israel. But what happened to the nation of Israel? Did they remain faithful to God? No. What happened to Jesus? Did he remain faithful? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. All right? He is the fulfillment of the story of Israel, not only because he fulfills all of the prophecies, not only because he enhances and restores the law in his teaching, which he does, but because he remains sinless where Israel could not. Now, we live after that event, right? We too are sinners, aren't we? But we look to Jesus, who is the sinless one, who took our place, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserved, and who as the sinless, perfect Son of God, the real Israel, if you want to call it that, calls us now to be his kingdom people. Okay, So the invitation is to us, but we do that through faith in Jesus. So that it's not dependent on what we do, because we have sinned and fallen, but dependent on what Jesus did. So this passage is not just an example for us when we face temptation. It is that. Okay? But it's also something bigger than that. It's a call for us to trust in Jesus. Because I can't read that passage without thinking, I, I failed so many times on those temptations. But I'm so thankful that Jesus hasn't and didn't and that he is my saviour, and he's my hope, and my trust is in him. Now I'm going to conclude, and then we can have some questions. But we said on Tuesday, scripture is divinely inspired, true and trustworthy words. And then yesterday we said it's the big story of God's salvation through Christ. 
On Tuesday, we said there's a problem that we sideline it by our own traditions. Yesterday, we said we misread it when we desire our own glory. And then the principle, we need to understand the cultural and historical background. That will help us, we said on Tuesday. Yesterday, we talked about repeated words and ideas, and we re-emphasize that today. The lesson, God wants obedience to his word and, and hearts that are near to him. Yesterday, we said he wants his word and his love to become internal to us. But today we're saying scripture is also a powerful weapon exposing the lies of Satan. In the world that we live in, it's not just a matter of my own wee ideas or the things that people think. There are powerful lies and delusions. And sometimes they're dressed up as being scriptural ideas the way Satan did. False teachings in the church. How are we going to recognize and one of the benefits that one of the reasons I got you to talk to each other is we don't just do this alone. We do it together in community as God's people. We say, what does God's word actually really say? Does it bring me closer to Jesus? Does it make me put my faith more in him and what he has done or more in me and what I can do? That's one of the big tests. And the thing is this, just like Satan, the big problem was not with what Satan said because he accurately quoted scripture. The problem was with what he didn't say. Do you see that? The most subtle false teachings are where you say part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. Or you emphasize something that should be secondary and you make it the center rather than making Jesus and his death and resurrection the center. Repeated, uh, the Bible can be misapplied to appeal to our sinful nature. We've got to follow the Spirit. And context within the passage, within the book that it's in, and within the whole Bible is key. And the lesson, God's word confronts our pride, our selfishness, and our greed, and it redirects our hearts to serve him. That's what God wants from us, to live for him as Jesus did, as selfless people, as humble people, and as, as people who are not greedy, whatever the opposite of greed is, giving people. People who live to serve God and to serve others. Now, that's just trying to whet your appetite. I hope you're excited about the potential of Scripture and getting this sense. And you might think, well, I need this is a bit beyond me, but I would say to you, look, dedicate your life to understanding the Word of God. You won't regret it. Right? It's worth putting the effort in, taking the time, reading it in its entirety, seeing how it fits together. But if we can help you more to do that, there is some information for you to take on the way out about courses at, at Belfast Bible College where I teach and Valerie also teaches in the Women's Study Fellowship there um, on Monday mornings for those who are ladies, sorry men, that's not open to you but evening classes are the information that's there there's also information about precept ministries that Valerie worked with for many times there are also other good tools out there not least your church and uh, your minister or pastor and I would go and talk to them as well and learn together your small group leaders uh, the community that you're part of. So we're happy to talk to you. Any quick questions just as, as we finish? Time is, is kind of up, but I want to make sure we can have a couple of questions. If you do need to nip out and get kids, please feel free to do that. But any, any quick questions? Okay, so there, are, there might be other questions in your mind about how do we understand and interpret Scripture. And the course that I'm doing next February, next January and February, is particularly designed to help you with that. On the bottom of the page, you'll see that website. That's where you'll get the completed notes for today. But also, you can dig around 
more widely on my website, send me an email if there's something you didn't understand and you want to continue a conversation. I'd love to do that as well. Um, but thank you for being here. Let me just pray very quickly for you as you as you go. Father, bless your people as they go into a world where they will face temptation, where there are many lies which bury themselves deeply into our hearts about who we are, about who you are, about what a good life looks like. It's hard, Father, for us. We thank you that you know that because Jesus lived this life and he understands. But we thank you that in your word we have a foundation, a resource, a powerful weapon that confronts the lies of Satan. May your spirit continue to do that in our lives as we stand strong in the armor that you have given us of faith and hope and righteousness as we trust in you and we do this standing together. So we pray for one another in this moment and for all the saints that we might be strong in you. And we rejoice in our great Savior, Jesus, who won the victory and in whose victory we stand firm. Not trying to fight to take ground, but simply standing firm in the ground that he has already won. And may we see many others come into this wonderful reality of faith in you. We pray it in his name. Amen.